so let me tell you a little bit about what we're going to do this morning in the Word. Um, we'll get back to our study in 1 John next Sunday. Um, but I had intended to preach the message that I want to bring to you today, last Sunday, which was the first Sunday of the year. Um, the last Sundays of the year, churches generally focus on the first coming of Jesus Christ, right? And we celebrate Christmas, and we celebrate his birth. Um, but then there's an event that we as Christians look forward to. That's the second coming of Jesus Christ sometime in the future. We don't know when. And we happen to be living our lives sandwiched between those two bookends, that first great event, the first coming of Christ, and the second great event, his second coming. And so we thought it fitting to do a message on the second coming of Christ to kick off this new year, seeing that you here at the church focused on his first coming to end the last year. Well, I was going to do that last Sunday, but I was sick. And I just want to say I appreciate all the prayers that all of you prayed for me. Um, I know it came across like it was really serious. It was not nearly as serious as it came across. Some people still think I'm in the hospital, though, and we keep getting texts. Are you still in the hospital? I was never in the hospital, all right? Um, uh, but one of our guys down in, in Morgan Hill or up in Morgan Hill said that I was, and so people think that that's what happened. Anyway, I had COVID. I got over it quick. I went in for a, an antiviral infusion and had a drug reaction, <laughs> So I said to some of my friends, I should have played golf that morning, um, but I had a drug reaction. So I was in the ER for a few hours, but I went home that evening, and I've recovered now. How did I get off on that? Anyway, I was going to preach this message last Sunday, so here we are. So we're going to talk a little bit about certainties of Christ's coming today. So with that, let's unite our hearts and ask the Lord to bless our time in his word, Okay. Join with me, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that we have the privilege of gathering together in your presence for the express purpose of worshiping you through your Son, by your Spirit, and speaking praises of the great things which you do. And all of us who are Christians can speak praises regarding how you've been faithful to us in many and various ways. Raquel and I surely have a list of ways that you've faithfully taken care of us, your benefits toward us, as my brothers and sisters in Christ have as well. And so we pray that as we've come together to worship you, that our continuing worship as we hear and receive the word would be sweet to your ears. We pray, Father, that as we work through some certainties about your son's second coming, that you would teach all of us and build us up in our faith. And we pray that you would continue to knit us together as one expression of the body of Christ. As Bob said earlier, so I praise you that you've created quite a family of faith here at Grace Bible Church. And I would pray that the message of this morning would just be used by you to knit this community of faith together even more tightly. But then also empower us to take the great message of Christ out into this community. And so, Father, we commit our time to you. I pray that you would feed your people, call those who are not your people to become so, and give me grace to teach in a way that honors Christ. We pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So, it's safe to say that since Jesus Christ came, the very first time people have been interested in him returning the second time. And even in our own secularizing society, crisis events often have people asking questions in this regard. So I'll give you two examples. When the World Trade Centers were attacked and collapsed, what was going to happen in the world was on a lot of people's minds. And during that time, I received a phone call there at the church. The phone call was from a young man, and he had one question. And the question that he was asking, in light of the fact that the World Trade Centers had just been taken down, and now this war is being declared, was, did I think that Jesus Christ was going to return in our lifetime? That was his question. And that's what he wanted to know. And I can't remember verbatim what I told him. We talked about it for a little while. But summarizing, I said two things. I said, on the one hand, I don't know, and on the other hand, but on the other hand, I know for sure. And that confused him a little bit. He wanted to know what I meant. I said, well, what I do not know is whether Jesus Christ is bodily going to return in our lifetime or not. But I do know something for sure. You're going to see him between now and 100 years from now. No question. He's going to come for you. What do you mean by that? What I mean by that is you're going to die. You're going to die. And so there's a sense in which that question is not so relevant. The question is whether you're going to be ready to meet him or not, whether you die and go to be with him, or whether he comes back physically. But he had a question about the second coming of Christ because of the attacks on the World Trade Center. Now, most recently, the war between Israel and Hamas has people asking a lot of questions about what those events in the Middle East mean and whether Jesus will come soon. And other people are asking, what should we as Christians be doing in light of the possibility that Jesus might come soon? And I would say this, there is a greater possibility that he'll come in our generation than ever before, and I'll tell you the factor that makes it a possibility. There was no Israel from A.D. 70 until 1948. And the one factor that is present in our world today that has never been present since 70 A.D. is that there is an Israel in the Middle East. That is significant. File that. But that's significant. But people ask, uh, what um, should I do as Christians in light of the possibility? And so, as I said, what I want to do this morning is to consider the second coming of Jesus Christ. And I want to speak to you about seven truths that are certain in connection with Christ's parousia. That's one of the Greek words that means coming. So, seven certainties in connection with Christ's second coming. And I'm going to make some application of these truths in some practical ways uh, so that we who are Christians will benefit from knowing some detail about the second coming of Jesus Christ so that we will be able to live more effectively. So if you've got a hard copy of the Bible or an electronic copy, you want to scroll or turn to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, and we're going to spend some time in that chapter, but also in some other passages as well. 
So I want to begin by reading Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 through 3. Here's what Matthew recorded. Matthew 24, verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these things, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming, Greek word parousia, and of the close of the age? What will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? So as we begin to look at these verses, it's important to realize, first of all, that questions about Jesus Christ's second coming date all the way back to Jesus' first disciples. He hadn't even left yet, and they were wondering when he's going to come again. And so the fact that people wonder about that today should be no surprise to us. But it's also important as we look at Matthew 24 to realize that Jesus said that there would be a lot of confusion surrounding his second coming. Let me show you what I mean in Matthew 24. If you jump down to verse 5, he said to his disciples, many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. If you jump down to the 24th verse... He says, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. He had mentioned false prophets already in verse 11. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And then if you look at verse 26, he stated, so if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. And so the point that's being made is that there's going to be some confusion revolving around the second coming of Jesus Christ. And he references some confusion that results from people claiming to be someone that they're not. Now, there's another source of confusion as well. There's some confusion theologically. Here's what I mean. Uh, there happens to be three major eschatological views regarding how the coming of Christ is going to unfold. Uh, if you don't know what an eschatological view is, that's okay. Michael Eastman will be happy to explain that to you. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that's just a system of last things where people try to explain the second coming of Christ, okay? And so there is some confusion uh, because there are three major views, and people hold those views, and sometimes people break fellowship over them. So I don't want to talk about an eschatological system this morning. I do want to talk about some certainties on the backdrop of what I just said. And so the question is, what can we know for certain about Jesus' second coming? What can we know for certain about his parousia, his return? 
And so let me give you one truth. The first truth that we need to realize is this. It is certain that no one knows the time of Jesus' second coming for certain. That is certain. That is certain. If you look at Matthew 24, 36, Jesus says as much. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Now listen to what he says. No one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. No one knows. And so it's certain that no one will know for certain the time of Jesus is coming. Now, some of you know the name Harold Camping. If you don't know who he is, don't sweat it. It's no big thing. You can read about him on Wikipedia, but I'm going to tell you all you need to know about Mr. Harold Camping. He predicted that Jesus Christ was going to come in 1994. Now, he wrote a book about it. He was wrong. He predicted again that he would come in May 2011. He didn't come. He predicted again that he would come back in October 2011. He didn't come. But the billboards and stuff that he had posted all over the Bay Area and all over the world had people asking questions. But Jesus didn't come back in October 2011. And then Harold Camping died in 2013, and the Lord straightened his theology out. (laughs) Right? And I just got to tell you, everyone else predicting dates will be wrong too. And the lesson is obvious. If some dude, if some lady comes up with dates, don't take the time and waste your time reading about that stuff because they're not going to get it right. And if Jesus said that even he himself, the son, doesn't know the time in Matthew 24, 36, you better believe no human's going to peg it right. It's just not going to happen. And so don't get swept away if somebody comes up with some prophecy or writes a new book in the future. These things get turned out somewhat regularly, okay? So that's the first certainty. The first certainty is no one knows for certain when Jesus Christ is going to return. Now, here's the second certainty. It is certain that Jesus will return a second time, and when he does return again, he's going to return in such a way that nobody's going to miss it. Let me emphasize that again. He will return the second time in such a way that nobody, 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 nobody is going to miss it. Even those that are in the graves aren't going to miss it. We'll talk about that in a minute. Nobody is going to miss it. Everyone will know it. And let me show you in Matthew 24 why we know that's true. If you read um, chapter 24 and you jump down to the 26th verse, Jesus says this, For if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. And then he says this, for as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. It's a pretty clear illustration, isn't it? Have you ever been in a lightning storm? How many of you have been in a lightning storm? I was in a lightning storm in Africa when I was in Zambia. I've been in lightning storms in the Morgan Hill area. When I lived in Gilroy, I was driving north one night to go to an elders meeting in Morgan Hill, 
and there was a lightning storm to the west, and the lightning was literally running across the sky, and it was fantastic, and it was not missable. It illuminated the whole sky, the night sky. Jesus uses a lightning storm as the lightning shines from the east even as far as the west. That's the way his coming is going to be. And so when the second coming takes place, you're not going to miss it. You are not going to miss it. No question. Look at verse 29 and 30. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now tune into verse 30. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with what? With power. And with what else? With great glory. With power and great glory. I could put it another way. I could say it like this. It is certain that when Christ returns again, he will return visibly, bodily, powerfully, authoritatively, gloriously, and suddenly. Write those down. That's how he will come. He will come visibly, bodily, authoritatively, powerfully, gloriously, And suddenly, verse 27, as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, that's the way the coming of the Son of Man will be. Verse 30, they'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Jump down to verse 42, therefore stay awake, for you do not know in what day your Lord is coming. He will come suddenly. And if you read the first chapter of Revelation and the seventh verse, you'll read these words, behold, he comes with clouds and every eye will see him and those who pierced him and all the kindreds of the earth will wail because of him. That's how he's coming back. You will not miss it. It will be very obvious. I remember my mom used to say before we were Christians and somehow she knew this and I don't know whether it's true or not. I never checked it out. But she used to say that everybody's waiting for Jesus to come back. And the New York Times has this special headline, and it'll be a bigger headline than they've ever used, that publicizes that Jesus has come again. I don't know about that. That's what she thought at the time. But I do know for sure what I'm talking about, that he's going to come visibly, bodily, authoritatively, powerfully, gloriously, and suddenly. And there's a lesson For all of us as Christians, it's a very simple lesson. I want you to tune into this lesson. Live as Christians ready for the Christ to return at any moment. How do you do that? Well, you take an assessment of your life and you say to yourself, if Jesus came back in the next moment, the next hour, the next afternoon, the next morning, later tonight, how should I be living my life? What would I like to be giving myself to so that when the Son of Man comes, it's commendable to him? Or put negatively, what do I want to avoid, fight against, resist, renounce, so that if the Son of Man came, I wouldn't be caught up in the midst of things 
that would cause me to be ashamed before him. Live life as Christians ready. Verse 42 to 42, Jesus said, Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So that's the second certainty. What about the third certainty? Well, thirdly, it is certain that when Jesus Christ returns the second time, there's going to be a twofold resurrection and a twofold judgment. And the twofold judgment is number four. And so let's talk about this third certainty. It is certain that when Jesus Christ returns the second time, there will be a twofold resurrection. There will be a resurrection of the saved, and there will be a resurrection of the unsaved. There will be a resurrection of what we could call the just, those justified by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what happens to you and me when we put our faith in Christ. We're justified before God. We're declared righteous, even though we're not. There'll be a resurrection of the just and a resurrection of the unjust, or put it another way, using a theological term, the unjustified. So everybody's going to be resurrected. So what in the world is that about? Well, let's talk about that in a little bit of detail. Uh, You remember, first of all, what I said earlier. When Jesus returns, every eye is going to see him and those who pierced him. How could they see him? They've been dead 2,000 years. They're going to be resurrected. That's how they're going to see him. All of those that have already died are going to be resurrected. And there's going to be a judgment of the just. Now let's talk about what that is about. Those who are Christ will appear before what we know of as the judgment seat of Christ. And that's spoken of in a couple of places. If you look over at 2 Corinthians 5.10, and the reason I want you to look there is because I don't want you to take my word for it. I want you to see it. 2 Corinthians 5.10, Paul is writing to a group of Christians, and in the 10th verse of chapter 5, he says, well, 9 and 10, for whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Why? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body whether good or evil. Now, this is the judgment seat of Christ. He's writing this to Christians. If you read 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11 to 15, there's an aspect of the judgment seat of Christ that's gone into with more specifics. And we're not going to turn there and read it, but that aspect of the judgment seat of Christ is actually directed to those who build on the foundation that the apostles laid for the church, which is Jesus Christ. And in that section of Scripture, 1 Corinthians 3, 11 to 15, what Paul says is that he planted, Apollos watered, and then he goes on to talk about how those that come after him are going to build on the foundation of Jesus Christ. He's talking about shepherd elders. He's talking about pastors. He's talking about church leaders. He's talking about people who took the baton from the apostles and are building, building, building in the midst of the church of Christ. 
And what he says to that group of people specifically, if you look at the context, is that if any man builds gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, and stubble, his work is going to be tested on that great day. And if it's, it's, it's work that's considered gold, silver, precious stone, then the way he did the work of ministry will endure. But if he builds with wood, hay, and stubble, we can summarize that to say with fleshly means instead of spiritual means, then the wood, hay, and stubble are going to be burned up. That's directed to church leaders. And he says, yet he himself will be saved yet as by fire. Now, that's what the judgment seat of Christ has to do. If you happen to be a church elder this morning, as I am, as Bob is, as Michael Eastman is, as Goliath is, as Darren is, um, that 1 Corinthians 3, 11 to 15 verse should be ever in our minds. Because the way we've built on the foundation in Christ's church, or put another way, the way we've stewarded another man's bride, we're going to be held accountable for. It's pretty intense. So does the judgment seat of Christ determine salvation? Now I want you to listen, because this is important to grasp if you're a Christian. The judgment seat of Christ for Christians is not for salvation. It is not a judgment determining your salvation. No, it's not that. You see, our salvation was settled when Christ died How long ago did that take place? About 2,000 years ago, plus or minus. Our salvation was settled when Christ died, and then when we, in our time, believed the gospel. And the penalty for all of the sins of every believer was paid for on the cross, and we realized the benefit of it through faith. We sang a song this morning about that. How salvation is not by our works, but it's according to faith in Christ. And so the judgment seat of Christ is not to determine salvation. That's already been settled. If we have faith in Christ, that's been settled forever. So what is it about? Well, it really is for reward for believers. It's for reward for believers. And so when you read a verse like 1 Timothy, or 2 Timothy, rather, chapter 4, verse 7 and 8, The Apostle Paul has said to his protege, Timothy, um, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. And then he says to Timothy, I have fought the good fight, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith. Now there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. He's talking about a reward. And then he goes to say, on to say, and also to all of those who have loved Christ's appearing. And so it's not just for the apostle who's finished his race that this crown of righteousness is laid up, but it also awaits all of those who have loved the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. How do, we allow, how do we love Jesus appearing? It's too directional. If you're a Christian this morning, I promise you, you love his first appearing. I love his first appearing. 
Because his first appearing brought me salvation and deliverance from sin and death in the grave and from judgment. And I love his second appearing. I want Jesus Christ to come back now. I would love it if he came back now. If not right now, so I don't have to finish the sermon. (laughs) Kidding. If not right now, this afternoon, tonight, tomorrow morning. There's a lot of reason to love his appearing. And so the judgment seat of Christ has to do with reward. And if you do a study in the New Testament about rewards, the rewards of the righteous, you can see a lot more than what I'm talking about this morning. So if that's the judgment seat of Christ for Christians, what about the judgment of the unjust, the judgment of those who are not justified? Well, that judgment is to affirm something. The judgment of the unjust, those who die in their sins, those who die outside faith in Jesus Christ, is to affirm that there is no salvation for them. Why would that be necessary? Why can't God just say, "Eh, you're not in? He doesn't say that because he's just. And he's righteous. It says that As Christians, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Why? Because our sins have been paid for in Christ and because Christ has satisfied the righteous demands of the law that we can't satisfy. God is just to forgive us our sins even though we commit them until we're made perfect at the resurrection. But he's also just toward those who are not Christians. And so no one is going to perish and be separated from God's sight without a full awareness of why that sentence is leveled toward them. Because God is just. Now let me show you a passage that talks about that judgment. Keep your finger in Matthew 28 and go all the way back to the last book of the New Testament, the book of Revelation. And we're going to look at Revelation chapter 20. In Revelation chapter 20, there is a judgment that's talked about. And when you read Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, here's what you read. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. Now, wait a second. How can somebody dead stand before a throne? Keep in mind, the unjust are going to be resurrected. And so they've been resurrected and they're standing before the throne. And they're called dead because they were dead in their trespasses and sins. This is the judgment of the unjust. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. That's a very interesting statement, right? This judgment for the unjust is to affirm to them there is no salvation. Now, the judgment of believers is markedly different from 
this final judgment of the unbeliever, the unjust, the judgment of the unbeliever is based on works. It's based on their works. The works prove their ungodliness. The works prove the absence of their name in the book of life. And that finalizes God's judgment. And it shows them that his judgment is absolutely, completely, and totally just. It's not unfair based on their ungodly works. And their evil works prove their lostness. And they will be separated from God, Christ, and good forever. Let me read you the rest of the passage. Verse 12, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Verse 13, the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Nothing proves who we are more than what we do. And then verse 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So that's the judgment of the unjust. And if you're not a Christian this morning or you're not sure, this should terrify you and concern you and cause you to lose sleep and cause you to lose rest because this is as much a certainty as the second coming of Christ is and the judgment of the just is. But there's hope. There's hope. There's hope for you this side of the grave. And what is the hope? The hope is the gospel of Jesus Christ. What in the world is that? Well, Jesus Christ came to save sinners. That's why he came. He said that. I came to save sinners, to seek and to save that which is lost. He actually said there's more rejoicing in heaven over unrighteous, one unrighteous person that repents than over 99 people that don't need repentance. He came to seek and to save that which is lost. Paul understood that, so he called himself the chief of sinners because Christ came to save sinners, quote unquote, of whom I am chief, Paul said. And you're a sinner, and I'm a sinner. All of us are sinners. Those that are in Christ are saved, justified sinners. If you're outside Christ, you're an unsaved sinner. Jesus came to save you from sin, death, and judgment so that instead of you being judged by your own works, you will be judged by his works, saved by his works, done to perfection. You see, I could say it this way. Those who die in their sins will be judged by their works. She or he who dies in faith will also be judged by works. Christ works in their place, in your place. Christ's works are perfect. He's an intercessor for us. He ever lives to make intercession for us. He stands before the Father as the propitiation for our sins. His works save us. Because when we put our faith in him, his works are awarded to our account. They're deposited in our bank account. So we're righteous on account of Jesus. But if you die in your sins, then you have to give account for your own works. 
So back to those that are not Christians, what should you do? Believe the gospel. Put your faith in Christ. You say, I don't know enough about Jesus to know what to do. You know, there was a time when people saw the John 3.16 sign in the end zone of the 49ers game. You ever see the dude that holds that sign up if you watch the Niners? Some of you don't like the Niners. You're cowboy fans, and they don't have a John 3.16 guy. But (laughs) all joking aside, there was a day when someone saw John 3.16, and people understood, oh, that's John's gospel, verse 16 of chapter 3. We live in a day and an age today when people see John 3.16 and they're thinking, oh, the guy's name's John. He's sitting in the third row in the 16th seat. You follow me? Some of you might not know what John 3.16 is and you might not know the content of the gospel. So, uh, without belaboring the point, if you are not a Christian or you're not sure, uh, put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ if you know the content of the gospel. If you don't know the content of the gospel, make it your goal to learn it to learn it, to learn it, to find out what it's about, and then put your faith in it. I'll tell you a good place to start if you don't have a clue. Out there in the foyer, there are these little bitty booklets, Experiencing God's Grace. These little bitty booklets contain one of the most complete and clear presentations of the good news of Jesus Christ that you can buy and read. And so, if you're not a Christian, pick one up and read it and ask the Lord to open your eyes but put your faith in Christ. That's what you should do. It's the only way to escape God's judgment of the unjust, for there is only one name given among men under heaven whereby we must be saved, and that's the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so those were four certainties. Let me give you a fifth. The fifth certainty as a result of the second coming of Jesus Christ is that when Christ returns, he will be given the earthly throne of his earthly father, David. Let me say that again. When Christ returns, he will be given the earthly throne of his earthly father, David. Now, that was a promise out of the prophets given by the angel to Jesus' mother, Mary. Let me show you where it is. Look at Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. This is in the Christmas story. I had the privilege of preaching on this um, up at West Hills. So find Luke chapter 1. And then scan down verse 26 to 38. That's the angelic announcement to Mary that she was going to bear the Christ child. Now take a look at verse 32. One of the promises the angel said to Mary was he, the child... The child you're going to call Jesus, verse 31, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. That is a literal promise about a literal throne that a literal king, Jesus Christ, is going to obtain and sit on and rule from. There's no bait and switch here. Can't spiritualize it. Jesus is going to be given the earthly throne of his earthly father, David. And he's going to reign on this earth from Jerusalem forever over Jacob, over Israel, over the world. I'll tell you what that means. 
and it's so relevant for us today. Is there peace in the Middle East today? Absolutely not. Are things becoming more and more unpeaceful? Absolutely they are. The fear is that that conflict's going to become regional. It already is regional. All these human rulers come up with these plans. They will never bring peace to the Middle East. And there won't be peace to the Middle East in the Middle East that lasts and lasts and lasts until the Prince of Peace comes and establishes peace from the throne of David. This is a certainty. It's prophesied in Isaiah 9. It's promised in Luke chapter 1. And it will happen in the future sometime. Right? Amen. <laughs> and we could stop right there. But I have two more. Uh, so thus far we've seen five certainties which revolve around Christ's second coming. Let, let me give them to you if you missed writing them down. First of all, no one knows for certain when Christ comes. Secondly, he will come bodily, visibly, gloriously, powerfully, authoritatively, and suddenly. Thirdly, there will be a twofold resurrection. Fourthly, there will be a twofold judgment, the judgment seat of Christ and the judgment of the unjust. And then fifthly, when Jesus returns, he is going to reign from a physical throne in a real city called Jerusalem, in a real location in the Middle East, over the house of Jacob and Israel, and he's going to reign forever and ever and ever. Now, there are two more certainties which will be realized with Christ's second coming. Here's the sixth. When Jesus Christ returns the second time, it is certain that death will die. It is certain that death will be banished. It is certain that death will be no more. And Christ has already given proof of this fact. The resurrection proves this. So, this was promised in the Old Testament. Again, I've got to show you a text. Look back in the Old Testament to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah. Now, there's some wonderful truths in these Old Testament prophets. The whole New Testament is built on the foundation of the apostles and the, or, and the prophets. Listen to these words from Isaiah chapter 25. I'm going to read verse 6 through 8. The Lord said through Isaiah, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. So the nations aren't going to be in darkness anymore. And verse 8 just brings tears to my eyes so many times. Listen to these words. He will swallow up death forever. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. That's talking about the death of death. And if you back, go back to Revelation and you jump down in chapter 21, you have a parallel passage. The parallel passage says that God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. That's a quote from Isaiah 25 and verse 8. And so... The death of death is promised in the Old Testament. It was hoped for 
in the New Testament, if you read 1 Corinthians 15, 53, the Apostle Paul wrote there that the last enemy to be conquered will be death, and it was realized at Christ, it will be realized at Christ's return in his final judgment. And I read from chapter 20 and chapter 21, verse 4. Now, let me ask you a question. Can you imagine a world where there is no death? Stop and think about that for a second. Can you imagine a world where there is no death? It's hard to imagine, isn't it? You know, we're praying for one of our ladies right now. She's on the brink of eternity. She's dying of cancer. Her husband is keeping the vigil. He's sitting by her bedside. And he's wondering why the Lord just doesn't take her home now. Because she isn't going to survive. She can barely breathe. She's paralyzed down one side of her body. Those types of scenarios will be gone forever. Because death is going to die. There will be no loss of life. No sorrow. No grieving. No mourning. Someday that will be the norm. That's a certainty of Christ coming. A certainty of Christ coming. Come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. And then let me give you a final one, seventh. Um, There is the certainty that after Christ's kingdom fully comes, Christ will destroy the old earth and establish a new one. Uh, Look look at uh, the apostle Peter's writing. We've obviously gotten out of Matthew 24 now. But these apostles who were there when Jesus taught what he taught in Matthew 24 wrote the letters that we have as the New Testament. Um, listen to these words in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 11 to 13. Peter said, says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, talking about heaven and earth, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the God, day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So that's the seventh certainty, that after Christ comes and his kingdom fully comes, Christ will destroy the old earth and establish a new one. It's called a new heaven and a new earth. Now let me ask you a question. How many of you have great concern about the environment in which we live? Any environmentalists here? It's okay to say yes, all right? Because listen, part of the creation mandate is to take good care of the creation God gave us. But here's what we've got to realize. The creation that God gave us, as good as it is because it's his creation, is nevertheless a fallen creation. It's corrupted by sin. And someday the very creation is going to be delivered from sin, and then there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth that has no corruption of sin. So, those are the seven certainties of Christ's coming. Seven truths we know for certain from the Bible about Christ's second coming and its aftermath. So, here's a question, and with this I'm going to close. How should we live today in light of what will happen in the future? Maybe tonight, maybe this afternoon, maybe tomorrow, maybe next year. Well, let me just talk to you as Christians quickly. First of all, we should consider a couple of teachings. The first is by Peter. I just read it. 2 Peter 3, verses 11 to 13. 
If you don't have your finger there, go there so you can see it on the page because I want you to see it in the Word. Um, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Three truths there. First of all, if you're a Christian, make it your point to be pursuing holiness. The Lord says to his covenant people, be holy for I am holy as the Lord your God. Make it your purpose to be pursuing a life of godliness. What is godliness? It's God-likeness. Have you learned what God-likeness is in a human body by reading about Jesus and seeing how he lived in the flesh? The most godly human that's ever walked the earth. Pursue godliness, live to hasten the day of the Lord. Now, how do we do that? How do we hasten the coming of the day of God? Well, I'll give you one insight. Jesus in Matthew 24, 14 says that the gospel of the kingdom will be preached to all nations as a witness to them, and then the end will come. Are you a witness for Christ? Do you tell other people about Jesus? Do you share your testimony? Do you pray for friends that aren't believers and look for an opening to share the gospel with them? When's the last time you laid out the good news of Jesus and how it saved you to an unsaved friend or an unsaved person that's in your arena? Why is that important? Because the gospel of the kingdom will be preached among all nations as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. And what that means practically is one of these days, the last of God's elect will believe and when that happens... The end will come. And how do you know but that you won't be the person who serves the gospel to the last of the elect who will be saved? You don't. And so be witnesses. You've got lots of reasons to be witnesses. Show you one more passage and then I'm going to pray. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. That's another solid passage. It's a wonderful passage. Titus chapter 2, 11 to 14. Listen to the words that Paul wrote to Titus there. So interesting. Paul wrote, and I quote, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people and training us. That's interesting. Some people might ask, is grace passive or is grace active? Paul says grace is active. Grace is active. That's why when a person becomes a recipient of the grace of God through faith in Christ, their life starts changing because grace is active. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us. What does it train us to do? To renounce ungodliness? And so to be prepared, live a life where we're renouncing ungodliness and pursuing godliness. Training us to renounce worldly passions and training us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age and training us to wait. What are we waiting for? What are we waiting for? Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Live for this. 
Live for him. Look for him in the spirit until he comes or until you go to be with him, whichever comes first. And as we return to 1 John next Sunday, we'll get into more detail about how we live these truths out as Christians at the opening of the 21st century. Join with me. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you now that we could be in your word. Um, I know that I've shared lots and lots of things. And I know that nobody in the auditorium is going to remember the whole message or even most of it. But I also know that you take individual lines from sermons and you use them to pierce people's hearts, to challenge your people, to build your people up, to encourage your people. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be doing just that. That you would be taking what's been spoken from your word and applying it to each heart of each Christian the way you see we need it applied. And that you would build us up in our most holy faith. And then I pray for those that are in our midst who might not know if they're Christians or not or might be sure that they are. That this might be the day that they get serious about considering Jesus Christ the Lord and that by the Spirit you might draw them to yourself. Please grant that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I'm going to close. Close with one verse. This is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Here's the benediction. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Come quickly. God's people said amen.